Hello, I'm Annette Badland, and you're listening to The Sirens of Audio. I'm shaking my booty. Join in. G'day audiophiles, welcome to the Sirens of Audio, it's great to be back, this is the podcast that explores the universe of Doctor Who in the audio medium, my name is Dwayne, and my name is Philip, g'day Dwayne, g'day audiophiles. Great to be here once again, uh, we've got a great show lined up tonight, we're going to be having a special conversation with Annette Badland who has uh, featured in quite a few Big Finish uh, releases. Uh, but we know her best of all as Doctor Who fans from the first series of, of Doctor Who. Uh, she she made a huge impact in that first season. So um, very excited about that. So what about yourself, Philip? Yes, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, she's a huge star of film, television, audio and stage. Um, but yeah, made a big impact for Doctor Who and Russell T. Davis loved her so much. She was the first person he asked to come back and reprise a character. So it's a special place in Doctor Who history she has in terms of the, the new series when it came back. Excellent. So we'll have a chat with her in a few minutes. But uh, before we do that, um, I just want to throw in a quick reminder here that uh, if you've been listening to us, um, give us a, a like, share, subscribe, uh, whether you're doing that via podcast or via YouTube. Um, just do that so you get notified when our new episodes drop. That would be fantastic. So, Philip. I'm going to take you down a rabbit hole. Here we go! Oh no! Me, me. <laughs> okay, it's not too controversial and it's not too much of a rabbit hole that you need to worry about, Philip. But I just want to talk about... We're recording this at the beginning of March, so... Um, some time may have passed before this hits our <laughs> hits our podcast feed, uh, but it's been well, we've had we've had, a, had quite a few uh, guests on so far this year, so we haven't had a chance to talk much about the releases that have come out so far this year. We did a special on Masterful, which was the first re- big finish release of the year, but the other ones we haven't talked a great deal about. So, is there any standouts from the last couple of months to you? Particularly, we've had the Fourth Doctor, we've had uh, Gallifrey come out, uh, we've had a River Song as well. Any standouts from these uh, first couple of months worth of releases? Uh, they were all great. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the Fourth the Fourth Doctor releases I thought were brilliant. Um, so all four of them had different uh, different elements, which I thought worked really well. So I've enjoyed them. Um, Gallifrey yeah. I enjoyed. It was a nice wrap up to the Time War. But yeah, I'm looking forward to see where they take. Gallifrey next um, without Scott. Yeah, because they uh, they did mention in the Big Finish podcast just this last weekend, Nick Briggs they, did let slip. He said, I've seen the scripts and it's looking good. So yeah. whoever's going to take over as producer and director for those, uh, Scott Hancock was doing it, but he's handing over the reins to someone else. We don't know who. Uh, yeah. well, we've got a few new producers coming into Big Finish. That was a big announcement too, early this year. So mm. for the new ranges that are, that are coming up later. Um, I I haven't heard all the Torchwoods yet. Well, there's only been two, hasn't there, so far? 
but I really enjoyed uh, the January release, which was called Coffee. Yes. It was really, really good. You know, I, I left I left the Torchwood series for a while, but I'm really enjoying these the monthly releases. Uh, and it, it was a really, really touching story to see it from the point of view of, see Torchwood from the point of view of someone who was not associated with Torchwood, but was having sort of um, secondhand interactions with with members of Torchwood. So that was great. Yanto's story, that was. I do wonder whether people who aren't as familiar with the series would get it. Because, I mean, there's so many references to so many different stories in the first three seasons. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, yeah, so, but that being said, it was, for th- those of us who've watched the whole series a few times, it was very, very cleverly done. And the trouble was, you, you could kind of see where it was going to end, uh, because we know what happened to Yanto. But, yeah, yeah. it was worth it. It was, it was a great story. Absolutely. And what else has come out? Yeah, I enjoyed the Fourth Doctor series as well. The River Song um, was great. Um, it, once again, it, was, it wasn't what was planned. It was, I'm curious to know what was planned. But the, the planned okay. box set was going to be too big for lockdown. And so all those scripts were put together and assembled to allow them to happen in lockdown. Okay. But it's, it's lovely hearing Alex Kingston act with her daughter. So the first, yeah. the first two shows had her daughter as one of the characters. Um, and the the K nine one is also very clever and had a lovely twist, which I didn't see coming towards the end. So, yeah, K nine K nine was great. Now I haven't told you this yet, Philip, but uh, I have in my mind that I would like to do a special podcast episode just specifically reviewing Space nineteen ninety nine because that uh, volume one box set came out only in the last week or two, the time of recording, and. This has absolutely blown me away. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to it yet. Have you heard it? Just the first episode. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I've only heard the first episode too. <laughs> but I tell you what, if this is any indication of what the rest of the box set is going to be like, we've got... Actually, uh, when uh, when I finished listening to the first episode, I, I came and I dug out that TV episode, uh, Death's Other, Other Dominion, and uh, started watching that with Brian, Brian Blessed. Blind Bressed? No. Brian Blessed. Uh, and, <laughs> and. Gordon's alive. Yeah, just to, just to sort of. Yeah, just to get that in my head for before I was listening to the rest. But the sound design in this is an interesting one because the sound is not sole, the sole responsibility of one person in this one. So we've got someone doing the sound effects. We've got someone doing, I think it's Joe Kramer, doing the music. We had Benji Clifford do the title. Um, and all of these things put together, I put the headphones on and that title sequence, it was really thumping my ears. It actually gave me shivers, gave me shivers all over. I absolutely loved it. This was a a very exciting release. And if you're a a fan of, I'm not a massive fan of Space 1999, but I know the series and I know what it looks like. I know what it sounds like. And I found this one really, really exciting, this first episode. I'm looking forward to hearing the rest. I used to get up at 6am every morning for years to watch Space 1999. Mm. So, and even, it even moved to like 5am, I think 4.30. My parents were quite furious whenever they caught me because I used to sneak up just to watch it over and over again. So it, it was a big part of my childhood. We should probably talk about a couple of the appearances of Annette Badland uh, before we speak to her. We might do that uh, at the end, but before we bring Annette on, let's throw in a trailer right now 
for the Torchwood episode that she appeared in most recently, and that was called Sync. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Torchwood Sync. Knock, knock, knock. Anybody home? Oh. Hello. Who the hell are you? I'm Margaret Blaine. I'm the mayor of Cardiff. Is this your spaceship? I saw the crash. I came to help. Oh. <laughs> so you're a UFO spotter. This must be your lucky night. <laughs> well, up to point. Alert! Warp missiles detected. Homing in on your communication system. Oh. But, but missiles? <laughs> yes! What's a warp missile? Warp missiles. They won't just kill us. They'll destroy most of Cardiff. What? Well, this isn't exactly going according to plan. Big finish. We, we love, love stories. stories. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, seriously? That was you? You need to change your diet. That is lethal. Today's guest has had a long and distinguished career on stage, uh, in movies, television and audio. She was nominated for the prestigious Olivia Award for her role in the hit play Rise of Little Voice and was the very first actor to be invited back to reprise her character when Doctor Who returned in 2005. Annette Badland, welcome to Sirens of Audio. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. It's lovely. I Have feel you... as a siren I should be doing something more magical <laughs> than sitting just talking to you. I should f at least levitate. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you could manage that later, that would be great as well. Yes, I'll do my best. <laughs> now, you've had a very long career in, in acting in particular. Just how, how, how did you decide to become an, an actor? Like a lot of people, Parents' Day, when I was about 10. And I got to um, enact a character called Meg's Merrill is why my class chanted the poem behind me for Parents' Day. And um, I felt the audience for the first time. I could make them laugh and I could stop them laughing. And as an only child, that was quite a gift to have in the palm of my hand. So that kind of stayed with me. And then when I was um, in senior school, uh, I was in the the you know the drama group and uh, luckily had a then very young uh, drama teacher. I realise now because we're still in touch that there wasn't you know many, there was ten years between us. So she was a young woman starting her career and she sort of took me on and I'd go to her on Saturdays and I took something called the Lambda external exams. Lambda was a, a drama school and you could go and um, be adjudicated. Um, I remember one very old adjudicator, a lady I had, um, who was terribly smart and very pernickety. And you went and you had to learn technical detail about voice production and all that sort of thing and recite a poem or a piece for them. And um, something that stuck with me from her, like this poem I had, had St. James is plural uh, in it. And she said, it's St. James not St. James's, it's much tidier, more eloquent. Um, and I always remember that. So now I'm shouting at the television all the time going, it's not James's. <laughs> it's no S, it's nicer if you don't say it. But of course it's become common parlance now. Um, so yeah, Parents' Day and then just, um, I took the exams because 
in a, I, I grew up in Birmingham to begin with, and then we moved out to a small town. So by the time I was actually doing anything on stage, I was in a small town and I thought, I don't know if I'm any good at all, you know, whether they just recognize me and, you know, kind of, that's why they're nice to me. So the exams were a way of just testing whether I actually could do it or not, as well as being in the WI and the, the, the school drama group and all that sort of thing. So that was the beginnings and then off to drama school. I worked for a, doc a practice doctors for a year as their receptionist. They, I first went in to write, they were just becoming computerized. So this was in the 60s, late 60s. Um, and so I would sit in a room and write these cards out for them and that then somehow got put into the computer system. Um, and I tell you, being on reception was quite an acting task to kind of seeing all the patient, patients coming in with their various problems and demands. And uh, so that was a skill of my acting technique as well. <laughs> now, the UK seems to have a much broader and wider opportunity for theatre. Um, I guess all theatre is suffering at the moment and has. Australia has had the same tradition. We have big shows come out. And it's a lot harder for small companies to make much money, whereas it seems to be much bigger. Uh, each town seems to have its own little theatre, and people tend to tour more broadly. So you seem to have a very uh, a lot of history doing a lot of touring early on. Is that what you did a lot of stage work? Uh, I didn't do a great. Well, I started with the Actors Company, which was um, Ian McKellen and um, Caroline Blakeston, Sheila Reed. Um, many other well-known actors, Ted Petherbridge, um, and they decided to employ the directors. So when I first came out of drama school, I went as an acting ASM with them and we did the Edinburgh Festival and then we did a little tour and ended up in Cambridge. Um, but I haven't done a great deal of touring, small theatres I've been and I, after that I went to the RSC and stayed for a couple of years, um, but then went out into what we called rep, repertory theatre, where actors could go and stay for six months or three months and have a whole variety of roles, which sadly now doesn't happen for younger actors. You don't get that kind of breadth of experience because the theatres have closed. And I think post COVID a lot more will, you know, those few remaining will really struggle to, to stay in existence. Uh, you could move, around a great deal more, um, you know, fringe theatres, talking about the Edinburgh Festival, but also fringe theatres in London, the Bush, and, um, you know, smaller venues that could be experimental and uh, work with new writers. I think it's very hard for not only actors, but writers at the moment to get their work heard and seen um, because the big companies can't afford to, you know, have failures and, um, so it, they, they really struggle. Of course, it's all moved online now. I, during lockdown, I've done a, a couple of web series and, you know, one by a very good, reasonably established writer. But it's where they can get their work done and seen. Young filmmaker I'm going to do a bit for next week and he's beginning to get a track record. But uh, the Internet's the only way, you know, he'll make a film and put it out on that and, and hope it can grow. Mm. Now, one of the plays you did, I mentioned before, you were nominated for an Olivier for, for the uh, the Rise of Little Voice. It's a pretty, it's a great play. I remember seeing it many uh, years ago. Um, it's so what, one of, 
I hold it dear to my heart. <laughs> so, so what, so what role, um, what role were you nominated for? And um... uh, Sadie May, oh, okay. who was the sidekick to the Mari, the leading lady and defender of Little Voice, um, who um, both in the play and the film was played by Jane Horrocks, magnificently. Um, and Jane and I were the only two who were also in the play. And we started at the National in what was then the Cottesloe and is now the Dorfman. And then we moved to the Aldwych. Um, Pete Postlethwaite was in it. Um, Alison Steadman played it originally and then Brenda Blethyn did the film. Um, and written by Jim Cartwright, who when he was at school was um, sort of called Jim Cartwright. Uh, <laughs> but his work was seeming reality that was poetry just wonderful stuff absolutely glorious and Sadie May was not the brightest person but the most <laughs> loving and supportive and um, I mean repressed but then you get fabulous things like the dance and um, she, she just went wild for the Jackson 5 and, and suddenly you know in the play I was running over the sofa and up the walls and um, uh, the true friend and I used to enjoy that at the beginning of the play the audience would be laughing at me and by the end, they were laughing with me. And um, add a few tears. Yeah, and it's that's Jim's the eloquence of Jim's writing. I think um, to take a, a you know someone who hardly spoke said okay a lot because she would agree with things and try and support, um, and only had a few more sentences. But to to map that journey, how essential she was to those other characters. Um, and there are people in life, you know, all the unsung folk who are loyal and loving and um, are often discounted because they don't have loud voices or enough confidence to step forward. Um, so I just, I adored playing her. Um, it took a long time for the film to happen. We did the play in 93, started in 93, and we didn't do the film till 97. And there were a few versions of it. And eventually it was Mark Herman who both uh, redid the script and directed it. And of course, we had Michael Caine in the film as well. I remember skipping around the living room because I was going to work with Michael Caine. Um, who, I mean, Alfie for me was, you know, really seminal and, and a very different piece of work from anything we'd seen before. So, the, you know, he and Alfie, for me, were a real treasure in my teenage years. Uh, Having worked both film and theatre, do you feel like you get to know the cast as well? I mean, with theatre, you're living with them more day in, day out. Is, is, did you, do you feel like you got to know Michael Caine much? A little, because you spend time, you know, you're, we did have, we were very lucky we had a week's rehearsal before we started filming. So that was great. And we had to, you know, we'd go out and eat at nights and things. Um, but I'm quite deferential, I suppose. So I wouldn't intrude on. <laughs> but of course we were together for, for quite a while. And I've got something I retained from him that I said just the other day when I was filming. Um, one thing he did in one of the club scenes, there's uh, little voices singing in a club and, and her mother and I, Mari and I are there supporting her. And in this scene, uh, Michael was there too. Uh, Ray Say was there. 
uh, with us. And a uh, big group scene, and he, at one point he said, get your face in, girl. Go on, get your face in. <laughs> Make sure you're on camera. So it's something that's always, it's a little phrase I just use a lot and think, oh, yeah, get your face in, girl. Um, so I retain that from Michael for the rest of my life, I suppose. Well, you then went on to, I mean, you've had a huge career, film, television. I'm just stage. very old. <laughs> <laughs> I've just kept going. <laughs> um, I mean, as I sort of look through your uh, filmography, there doesn't seem to be a TV, a major TV show in England you haven't been in at some stage. And um, yeah. I, I mean, recently I flipped, you know, saw you an episode of The Bill in a repeat recently. And, and I'm I was sure in I... a few episodes of the bit. I was a villain. I was a heroine. You know, I killed someone and stuffed them under the stairs. I was um, a sort of um, social services lady in one of them. Uh, I think I did about six or seven. It was hell getting there, I have to say. I live on way on, diagonally opposed on the other side of London. So it was a sort of day trip just to get to work. But it's great when you meet people from it again. You know, um, I've only just recently uh, encountered someone who who was a regular in it. And uh, it was such an institution. And, uh, and oh, and I've worked with the director from it, just uh, who came on to I'm on Midsummer Murders at the moment. So um, a director came on who'd, who'd been in the bill a lot, worked with the bill a lot. And so we were kind of rootling through our memories of it. Um, very dedicated actors. I remember as I kept going back thinking, blimey, it's like they really are in the police force. You know, they had to clock in. and <laughs> They were as dedicated as the police, you know, the sort of that institution. They had uh, not that they become institutionalized, but just that uh, it was as demanding as that, I suppose. It just required that amount of dedication to keep turning up and, and keep working. And you were quite a regular on Bergerac for a while too. So were you working with, working with Louise Jemison? Yeah, I was, um, I was the secretary from the get-go, um, Charlotte. And I looked like I'm chasing John Nettles as well, because of course he went on to Midsummer and now I'm in Midsummer. It looks like I've just missed him. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the producer of that, Robert Banks Stewart, who was absolutely phenomenal and generated lots of, of programs on at the Beeb at that time. Um, he thought he was taking quite a risk uh, casting me as Charlotte and told me uh, because I was um, spherical. I wasn't the sexy, you know, secretary. So he thought that was quite daring. And they was mightily relieved when I got fan mail. And <laughs> um, so I was, I've always been kind of proud of that as well, that I wasn't the stock secretary and physically anyway. Um, and had to speak French, had to speak little bits of French because of Jersey. So that was nice too. Yeah, but Lou, Lou came on to it. But Lou and I have known one another since we began. Um, that time I say that I went to the RSC, Lou and I uh, were at the RSC at the same time. We, we joined together. Um, so that's where I know her from more than, you know, thinking and then we encountered her on Bergerac and um, she's just been, I'm probably not supposed to say it, but she's just been on recorded a midsummer as well. So we keep, yeah, we keep bumping into one another, which is great. We have a little plan. We, we talked about something we might do together, but uh, whether it'll ever happen, I don't know. I couldn't help but notice over your shoulder 
the uh, the poster for Jabberwocky. What was it like working yeah. with Terry Gilliam way back in the wonderful. day? Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. He's a nutcase and he'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be walking in front, you'd be walking together and he'd suddenly just go in front of you and bend over so you fell over him. You know, you kind of uh, did a, a somersault over the top of his back. Oh, he was just wonderful. And he's so bright and and funny and inventive. And then Michael was just, you know, Mike Palin is everything you see. He's a beautiful human being. Um, so I had a great time in sitting, waiting to work with people like Max Wall, who is absolutely beautiful in the film. Um, but hearing some of his tales and Warren Mitchell, you know, was my dad. Um, so we had a great time in the Isha Forest and it was uh, 76 and it was that it was really hot summer. Um, and then recently, um, Terry and Mike and I did the BFI because they've remastered it. And you kind of think, remastered it? We only made it last week. Why, why do they need to remaster? And you go, oh no, it was quite a few years ago. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, but I had a great time on it. Really super. I did to audition for it because uh, Griselda Fishfinger, which is my character in it, um, they wanted to be sort of as ugly as possible. And I remember orange doesn't suit me. So I wore orange and I tied a scarf tight around my neck and I wore glasses. And I remember I borrowed the glasses and uh, I went into the casting and I couldn't see a damn thing. It was someone's flat. <laughs> and I remember struggling down this corridor thinking, oh, this was a big mistake. <laughs> but I got it great. Absolutely fantastic. Lots of interesting, Sandy, Lee, Sandy Lieberson, the producer, lots of really interesting folk on it. Um, yeah, had a, a great time. Um, and it's wonderful, you know, it's Python-esque, but it was, as I say, Terry's first film out of um, being with the Pythons and very much his own project. So I had a great time. Well, in 2005, you came to play Blonde Phil Fitzpasadima de Slitheen. Um That wasn't quite right, you know. <laughs> oh, tell me, uh, correct me then. <laughs> Blonde Phil Fitzpasadima de Slitheen. There you go. <laughs> it was, comes from Rexico oh Rexicorcophalopatorius. <laughs> that little place. <laughs> well done. <laughs> so how did how did you come to uh be on Doctor Who? How did that happen? Because Russell T. Davis is a god. <laughs> um they invited me and, and as they often do. Boomtown wasn't written. That wasn't, you know, anywhere was on the horizon. It was, wasn't even planned. It was, I mean, Russell T talks about the fact that your performance was so breathtaking that he had to have you back. And he, he, oh, wrote, well. he, he wrote Boomtown just because your performance was so amazing. Oh, well, I've not heard that. I'm very grateful. Um, I knew he liked what I'd done. But, um, yeah, we shot first two eps uh before anything else that was the first two eps they filmed in the regeneration because i'm sure you probably know they don't shoot the first episode of anything they tuck that away so that they know how the machine works by the time they get to it and everybody's you know working as a team so we shot our first two eps which were in the summer 
and then went away and I was doing something else called Cutting It, another series that was based in Manchester. And I'd also worked with Phil before, Phil Collinson, the producer. Um, and Boomtown arrived on the map, which was amazing. And it was around Christmas time and it just had everything in it. He just had written the gamut, you know, she's lonely. She's, there's lines like dinner in bondage work for me, <laughs> which I love. Um, so let's start with the first two episodes in terms of, uh, was actually much of a, we just asked to do it, or did you have to go through an audition process? How, how, did, how did they actually I get the role? I'd worked with, I probably, I think I just met them. Um, it wasn't, it didn't just come through the door, but I think I, I remember being in a room with Phil and, and, and Russell, and I think I was just, you know, I didn't really audition for it but we met and um, Phil had done, I'd born, done a, a series called Born and Bred with Phil um, and Russell just as I, I bet everybody knows has an encyclopedic knowledge of actors and what they've been in. He can tell you things that you've long forgotten. Um, and I don't know if he still does, but he used to write with the television on. He had to have the television um, to sort of accompany him. So he went through a lot of material. <laughs> um, was there any feeling... And it was that... great being... Sorry, Danny. So, so I was just going to ask you in terms of... Sorry, I'll get back to what you're saying. Um, in terms of, was there any feeling that this was going to be a hit? I mean, the show had been off for years. Were you nervous about coming back in terms of this is going to be a big flop? What was the general feeling on set? I was thrilled when I was asked to do it. And as I say, I was on cutting it and I was going, I'm going to be in Doctor Who, I'm going to be in... And everybody was kind of vaguely indifferent, not sure, <laughs> going, oh, oh, right, Doctor Who, right, okay. Um, and I know that Russell and... I think it worked because Russell, Phil and Chris, the people involved at the top, loved it. It wasn't a cynical venture. Doctor Who was something they really cared about, really loved, really enjoyed. So they invested absolutely in it. And they also knew what would be right for the audience. And I think that's really why it succeeded, because it wasn't just some, oh, shall we pull that out and see if it'll go again? But no one knew. No one knew at all. We had the read through in Cardiff Stadium not in the actual sports, but a huge room. And it was quite gladiatorial. There was a long table with many execs and directors and producers, um, and then actors on the other, a long table with actors on the other side, then some heads of departments at either end, then beyond that chairs of people who were involved. So it was like a gladiatorial ar arena and you felt that the execs and the producers would hand, hold cards up with, you know, six, nine or <laughs> one, three scores. Um, so I felt very much for Chris and Billy, you know, who were, you know, it was the very beginnings of it. Um, but at the time, no one knew. They could only put their very best effort in and hope it engaged with the audience. Um, but everyone was on sort of tenterhooks and just putting in everything they possibly could. Um, makeup, prosthetics. Uh, I remember going for my prosthetic for my, my head. Um, 
and just the dedication when it when it arrived on set we were doing the first two eps and phil and russell came and said your head's arrived your head. come and see your head come and see your head and then my face fell because it was like a death mask uh, the color the coloration the artistry was just wonderful they caught the veins in my cheeks and um because the weight of the plaster cast pulls all your face down, it did look to me like a, de a death mask of me. And um, so they hurried, you know, they hurried me away <laughs> and put the, the, the head away as well. Um, so everybody was putting in as much as they possibly could. Um, and it worked. But as I, as I say, I think it came from the fact that it was regenerated by people who loved it just loved it and the material and uh, very much wanted to share that and and give that joy again well, the stories were excellent and received really well so so i mean the fans loved it Did, was there have been stories about a lot of issues with the production in terms of running late and a lot of stress because you're trying to work out how to make doctor who again when it hasn't been made for so long you know the collective memory's gone Did, did as, as an actor on the side, were you, did you see what was going on in terms of Billy and Chris and the others, or were you being um, at, at, at that loop? No, you're very aware, and things like they um, had scheduled in a week's break between each episode, but, um, and that was happening when I was first there, and by the time I got back, it had gone, because they needed every minute they could muster for, as I say, prosthetics and making the sure, sure the writing was correct and making the costumes. They just needed to keep going all the time. It was very, um, it was interesting, of course, being there right at the beginning and how things are uh, formulated and the discussion. And as I say, Chris loved it too. So very protective of it and taking care of it and, um, um, so that will slow a process down too. Again, we had a little rehearsal before we started. I've still got a drawing that Russell did of a Slitheen, um, you know, and wanted, talked about the quality of them uh, being ruthless, but being looking like babies. Their faces are like babies. Um, so you get, you had that duality in them. Um, so that of course will, if you're working something out, it will take longer. It's not just right, bish, bash, bosh. I am this, you are that. You've got to nurture it and develop it. Um, but yes, that was a huge change, as I say, the, the idea of, of having time out to, uh, we do it on midsummer, we have a read through and then there's a week where all the techies go off and do, you know, the recce and, get costumes and all of that sort of thing and that was what they hoped would happen for Doctor Who but it took all that time and much more besides but it was very adventurous you know um, uh, you know Russell asks for things that are not easy and um, but everybody steps up to the plate because he is extraordinary and you want to do your best and everyone's striving for the same thing so everybody does their ultimate to make it happen as i mentioned before russell t davis's book the writer's tale says that he was watching you do the scene with christopher eccleston uh, at the door with, with with the brandy and the flammable liquid 
and he watched your performance and he watched your face smile and the smile go from lovely genial to evil and that, that's the point where he worked out he wanted another episode with you and, oh. and so that's that's where he, he actually then went away from then and, and started to write Boomtown because he wanted you and Chris working together more because he just said the, the way you two worked together was just so strong so it must have been a nice nice when you heard that you were wanted back Oh, I was utterly thrilled, absolutely thrilled. And as I say, it arrived and re- I remember very clearly reading it and, and just relishing, just turning a page and going, oh, my God, and now this and this. Um, yes, just the most, one of the most wonderful gifts of my life. I mean, it, really it, was. it goes from slapstick humour to black humour to... <laughs> Everything that you could possibly imagine is happening in that in that one role. Now, in a moment, I want to talk about the uh, the torture episode you did, where you brought Margaret back. But before that, it's with Simon's audio, so we want to get to some of your audio work. Um, you started working for Big Finish, so now it's interesting that the first thing that you released isn't the first thing I think you recorded, because I'm pretty sure you came and worked with um, Tom Bacon and Louise Jamison first, and did the recorded the story Suburban Hell. It wasn't released for a couple yes. more years. So how, how did you come to work for Big Finish? Uh, because I suppose of Doctor Who. Thank you again, Russell. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, invited to work with them, which is fantastic. I'd met them at conventions, of course. I'd, I'd gone to conventions, so I'd, I'd met the guys. Um, but again, it's... Uh, the Doctor Who fandom is extraordinary. And... Um, I really enjoy still being part of it. Um, it sounds very serious, but it's it's just it was such an important event for me, and it's such an important piece of work for so many people. Not not my episode, but Doctor Who itself, and I really enjoy that I have managed to maintain some you know an ongoing relationship with them and that happens now through big finish um so i just love it when they they get in touch and you know i get to do things it was hard for them to bring margaret back because of time frames and they're very diligent about storytelling so it was hard with time frames for them to to find a place where margaret could sit but uh, I think Indira and I make quite a good duo. I think they need to do a spin-off personally, don't you? Well, I think we need a, a few more stories at least. I think that's I listened to Sync <laughs> in the last week, and you and I'm Indira, glad you agree. Oh, you, you and Indira are amazing. I, I, don't worry, I'll be, I'll be um, tweeting Big Finish saying this is a must <laughs> when I'm finished. Um, that that episode that you and Indira do it, it's just brilliantly brilliantly constructed. And it just captures both of you so well. I mean, Indira, Indira's an interesting role because in terms of, I'm not sure, when Russell conceived Torchwood, um, Indira was always going to be a character killed at the end of the first episode, but she's in all the advertising, all the publicity. She's cast as one of the main cast members. And she's a big, I mean, she was a big name. And, and Russell had deliberately decided he was going to have this huge, big name and then wipe her out <laughs> at the end of the first episode. <laughs> Which, which of course was so frustrating because I mean all of us I mean I loved Indira from other work she'd done yeah. and I couldn't believe that he, how could you do this you monster which is what Russell... he's, he's, he's the master that's right he calls me Dame Bad 
<laughs> Hello, Dane Bad. And for me, he's the God. I call him the master and the God. Um, yeah, well, he can do that, can't he? With a stroke of a, well, the, the touch of a key on a computer, he can just obliterate anybody he likes. <laughs> Be careful, never cross him. Yeah, but, but, but the fact that he went to so much deception with all the pre-advertising yeah. and everything, to have her as part of everything... Um, it, it was he's naughty. A, he's, he's also very naughty. Very naughty, as is Margaret <laughs> as the, the character. I mean, maybe that's why he likes the character so much because Margaret's such a naughty character. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> in, in terms of coming back and working with Indira and, and bringing back Margaret, was it hard to bring Margaret back, or is it natural for you now? The the writing was very. What I was pleased with was the the writing had captured her, because that would be very difficult if someone hadn't just got you know managed to pick up the essence and the and had written things that um i didn't think she would do or be so that was it was it was really to be relished it was lovely to get back in that suit <laughs> yeah zip on that suit be back be, be back being margaret um it it you do worry because it had been a number of years. Oh, will will I find her? Will it, will she be there? Um, but as I say, the writing was excellent, so you can really relish and sit in that, and you know, kind of uh, really feel the sinews again and the muscle and and uh, the mental nonsense of her. It really <laughs> sounded like the two of you uh, hit it off personally as well. Um, as colleagues during the recording, it's uh, you seem to connect. There was one part in the play actually that you two had a, a long, long laughing scene. I was actually listening to that on my walk yesterday, and you were both laughing so much that it infected me. I had to stop, and I was standing there giggling along too. So <laughs> it was an incredible scene, but it seemed to rub off. Uh, it seemed to rub off between you two as well, uh, and you seemed to become instant friends. Yeah, we'd not worked together before. Um, and really, really, and you're in separate booths, you know, you rarely, you know, now you're not in a booth at all, you're at home. Um, but um, we didn't, you know, we we had to go in and start working, there was a lot to do, but we really did. And uh, I'd seen her at the National and things, so, you know, and I knew her work, but we, we just seemed to have a naughty kind of sense of humour together and... <laughs> Uh, and off we went, and uh, I've regretted that we haven't been been back together again. You know, it's um, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I think we're funny uh, physically together too. We're kind of comedy act. Just looking at us, this tall, beautiful, elegant person, and, and this squishy person next to them, <laughs> which is always is Laurel and Hardy. You know, it's it's comedy before you start. <laughs> Sorry, we had the same sense of humour was all I was going to say. So the laughing was great. And we, of course, we got into laughing at the laughing. You know, you kind of, it's like, it's um, sometimes when you corpse on stage and you can't stop and it's, you know, or in a take, often late in a day when people are tired and you're trying to do a take and you both find something funny once and then you just can't get past it. You either one goes or the other goes so it was a little bit like that we were I guess it was quite fertile and um between us and and energized so that was just great now you've played a lot of different roles now to be finished I, I think it's 11 different productions you've been in um so ranging from uh alien witches <laughs> um 
to sort of, of royalty course. to equ- equilibrium. <laughs> you do royalty very well. Um, <laughs> I think one of, the, one of the ones I listened to this week as well was in the Die River song as, as the judge. Um, yes. That was, that was another interesting production. And I've been David, David Warner's therapist, which I quite liked as well. That was more grown up. <laughs> <laughs> in the um, that's, that's Bernice, was it? Yes. The Bernice Summerfield one, yes. Yes. Yeah. Anyway, you've done the Invisible Man, Confessions of Dorian Gray, uh, Padnosa Gang. You've With played John Hurt. John Hurt, who I'd done um, Quentin Crisp, you know, the... Um, diaries uh, on the telly was the first telly I did so I knew John from that so it was lovely to work with him again beautiful man much missed lovely John Hurt coming soon from Big Finish Productions the stranger came early in February one wintry day through a biting wind and a driving snow the invisible man you theorize away I'm going to ask no more questions, but only take his money. I am an experimental investigator. I do not wish to be disturbed in my work. I'm interested, I suppose, in light. Where the devil are you, sir? I'm standing before you, man. Inches from your face. Come. Let us shake hands, like gentlemen. I do believe he'd already started to unravel, even then. Please! He's gone mad! Everyone! The invisible man's gone mad! It's too late! Too late for you all! Amongst you. Dear God, dear merciful God, defend us. All is darkness now. Darkness rising. Big finish. We love stories. What do you find in terms of um, preparation that you have to do as an actor from, I guess you've, seen, I mean, you've been around for a reasonable amount of time, don't be rude. <laughs> um, <laughs> must a lot of ch- there's obviously a lot of change in terms of how film and television are produced. Um, how, do you, how do you react to different mediums? What, what sort of mediums do you like working in the best? And I still love theatre because you, you know in theatre why you're doing it. You know if you're making them laugh or not. You know, that, that parents day again. <clears throat> Excuse me. You can either they laugh. You can make them laugh and stop laughing, or if you don't, you failed. And but you know immediately, and it's everybody collective in that room at that time who have a very particular experience. Uh, I like film rather than studio-based work because again, it's quite vital, um, and the where you are the environment feed into you and feed that day's work. And I do love audio because it's very close to film and it's also somewhere where you can you can hear a thought. You know, if the actor's thinking the right thing, you know, or like that laughter incident, you know, it can, you enter into someone else's mind and as the actor you 
you have to allow the audience to do that. And I, I find that very stimulating. I like, although I'm someone who can do, you know, lots of different voices like witches or sirens or, you know, whatever. I do enjoy also always trying to find the proper reality for that, where that comes from and not just do silly noises. Uh, because I think the audience get much more from that. So I always am aware when I'm recording that I'm putting this in someone's ear, which is very close to their mind <laughs> and their head, you know. And uh, uh, So I, I do enjoy audio work. <laughs> I, I really should ask you about, uh, for, this is probably for my wife uh, as, as well as me, but uh, Outlander, you're in series one. So that was quite a lavish looking production um what was what are some of your memories for, from that because that do you I, I guess you'd you'd love getting into character for that it was a, a beautiful period piece yes it was and the actors of course i love um i admire ron d moore who's the was the producer he's just left now um i loved him being the head of the ship uh Kat and I um, got on immediately. She's the leading lady, and I was one of the I was one of the first three to be cast. Um, Tobias Menzies is in it, and Sam Hewan and myself were the first three people to be cast. They took a long time to find Claire, you know, to find Kat and the leading lady. Um, and I do remember going up to Scotland for a fitting and in walked Sam and my breath <laughs> disappearing because <laughs> he's such a wonderful hunk. But the most disarming thing about him was that he was then just so self-effacing and generous um, and no auteur about him whatsoever. So um, that was my beginning. And then they cast Cat and we did some work beforehand some rehearsal work with the director John Doyle um uh, Terry Dressback who is the costume designer who is Ron's partner is just extraordinary and so her work is so authentic uh, we had you know two underskirts two bum rolls not not a, a centimeter of velcro anywhere everything had to be laced if it were, was laced in the day. In those days, they didn't have pockets. They had um, two bags around their waists and a slit in their skirt. So this is what Terry did. That's what I had in my huge costume. I had to find the slit and then find this bag. But apparently women used to, um, island women used to have knitting in one bag and the baby on the arm on the other side. So they'd be knitting with one hand inside this bag and, and, and nurturing the baby at the same time. Um, oh, the sets, everything um, had to be very big for it. You know, um, the mad lads, all the boys, <laughs> um, naughty, wicked lads. I'd worked with uh, Gary Lewis before. We'd be man and wife in, in a film. Um, so I knew Gary, but, uh, you know, Grant O'Rourke is naughty. Well, everybody is Graham McTavish, the whole lot. Um, and everything was the, the castle that we worked in uh, had a very dry forecourt. So they imported the mud into this forecourt. And I remember one day where I had to keep coming into the forecourt 
um, and we had woolen stockings on, big underskirts, and the mud had just slowly walked up my legs as the day had gone on. It wasn't just squelchy feet, it was up into these great woolly stocking things. And at the end of the day, they wouldn't let me in the car to go home. They put an easy up out on the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to go in the easy up, take all my muddy stuff off, put a dressing gown on, and then they let me in a sort of transport van. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it was extremely colourful, um, very inclusive. And I think that came from Ron. Um, you know, everybody was respected and, and given their place and their due and their honour and then I had very good I'm still friends with Kat um, you know we had uh, I had a very good time on it um, another piece to be relished I'm, I'm very lucky really I've had you know often there's a handful of things that you treasure in your career and I've probably had two handfuls and I'm very grateful for that you certainly never seem to take a break at any point I try not to, <laughs> try not to. I love my work, I love my work um, and I love storytelling and, um, you know, trying to share with people what we're about, what humanity is about and sort of going, I feel this or this character feels this, do you, do you recognize this? Does it, what does that do to you? Does it make you laugh or is it, you know, make you think or cry or so, yeah. I love opening those scripts and and seeing what's possible. So I meant to ask before, in terms of when you came back to Doctor Who at the end of the production run, how you how the if the production had changed much in terms of how they were doing things, um, how were Chris and Billy? They were obviously very tired by that stage. Chris had decided to leave. Um, was it obvious that there was a change from beginning to end of the production, or was it just running on as usual? It might have been a little more tense certainly everyone was tired but as I say they didn't stop they didn't care to give in I mean it was punishing it was quite punishing that first series for everybody physically and uh, emotionally I imagine because you go on a huge roller coaster with something like that that's untried and everybody's pushing to to make it work um so you're you are mentally and physically done in by the end um but there was no acrimony or you know it was just um a drive i suppose they'd sort of you because you can't live on emotion for that amount of time there was a huge drive to get it done you know by the by the time i got back so what are the what are the roles you still long to play Oh, I've always wanted to play Lady M, but I don't think I will now. Um, I would like to go back as Margaret. I would like to be in something new that Russell writes. <laughs> However small I'd like to, isn't, you know, it's just he's, he's got his finger on the pulse of what we are. And he's one of the few writers I know who, in a single line, can move you from humour to great pathos. Um, but I've had, I know I've been very lucky because I was also in Wizards versus Aliens. So I've been able to 
indulge myself in a lot of and relish a lot of his writing. So I think I've probably had more with my fair share and I shouldn't be greedy. No, but, no, be, uh... be greedy, it's fine. <laughs> I would love to be in his work again. Listen, thank you so much for your time. Very appreciated. Um, my pleasure. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> you can go to bed now. <laughs> Squad! Present arms for the President of the Universe! Coming soon from Big Finish, Doctor Who, the new adventures of Bernice Summerfield, ruler of the universe. I see the great darkness coming, but also I see hope. Do you ever feel guilty? No. You're the most powerful man in the universe, and every decision you make, whether right or wrong, has consequences. What have you done? I thought you were saving us! We're being gassed. The doors won't open and they're, they're pumping gas into the cab! I know! Isn't it wonderful? And where does Professor Summerfield come in? Of all the people in this universe, she's the only person who believes in me. And I worry I've lost her. What could be more fun than being awful old me in a universe run by the Doctor? <laughs> Big finish. We love stories. Agent Bernie Summerfield, Special liaison to the President of the Universe, my card. Beans, beans, coffee, loyalty card. We're a secret agency, what do you expect? Well, Philip, that was a fantastic conversation with uh, Annette Badland. Uh, very uh, privileged to have her speaking with us for a while. How would you go with that? Yeah, I, you know, an amazing British star in every way. So it was great, yeah, great having a chat with her, lots of fun. Bit of a thrill. All right, let's give some recommendations for this episode. And um, I've just got a feeling, Philip, I think it might be your turn. I think it's my turn? Okay. If it's my turn, I'll go first then. Uh, I'm actually going to recommend Annette Badland uh, story, having just had her on. It's good to, I've, I've listened to everything she's done. Uh, and, and it's worth really worthwhile going back and having a listen to a few of her things. But I'm going to recommend Suburban Hell. Uh, it's one of the Tom Baker, Louise Jemison stories. Uh, I went back and listened to it this week and I didn't remember it. So this came out a long time ago now and it was recorded even earlier. But it's a, it's a, it's all set in one room, well, one house, basically one room. It's what the author wanted to do. He wanted to play around with just doing a, a play in a room and it worked really well. Uh, Louise and Tom are hilarious together. The opening couple of scenes, I'm laughing out loud. Uh, it's really great. And... Um, yeah, so highly recommend Suburban Hell. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, The Fourth Doctor Adventures, 
suburban hell. Bit of a hiccupette in the catering department. I don't suppose you'd have a jar of mayonnaise about the house? This is suburban England, late 1970s by the decor. There's mixed nuts in the sideboard. Would you be a darling, put them in a dish for me? We find ourselves in dire need of a few electronic oddments for the purpose of running repairs. And what are you driving? The doctor has a TARDIS. Well, it's one of those funny makes, isn't it, from Eastern Europe? So there is a wrinkle in time in the street outside? Yes, and the TARDIS has slipped to the far side of that instability. I do not understand this temporal ruckage, only that it caused the TARDIS to disappear just as soon as we stepped out of it. Curious, this picture. Woman with a blue face, oh, I should say so. Look at the sky in the background. All I see are stars. Stars, exactly. This particular astronomical arrangement is visible only from a point deep within the heart of the constellation Monoceros. Thing is, we were wondering about the Hopkinses. The people who used to live here. No one wants to say about them. Was there some scandal? What's that noise? Are we expecting someone for dinner? Only you. What is it you want? You have three minutes more to surrender the vessel. What's it on about? I don't know. Uh, you two got a boat? I think them blue things might be uh, eating him. Well, Doctor, can't say it's not been a good innings, but this time the chips are down and here comes the ketchup. Big finish. We love stories. What about you, Dwayne? What are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend, since we didn't talk about it uh, to this point, I'm going to recommend the Torchwood episode Sink, which uh, you did hear a trailer for earlier on. But I listened to this again recently and you were talking about laugh out loud moments. There's a couple of really laugh out loud moments in that episode. If you don't, if you're not laughing along with them, um, I don't think you're breathing. Uh, I was, and (laughs) those moments actually go on for quite a while and they go on so much that you just can't help but be infected by the, the laughter. And those two together, Susie and Blonde, are fabulous. Um well, of Blonde or Margaret, whatever you want to call her. Um, Absolutely fantastic story. I was trying to work out where in the chronology it was set for a while because I'd kind of forgotten a bit of Susie's backstory. So I was thinking, okay, where was this actually located? Was it before she joined Torchwood? Was it during Torchwood? But that all becomes clear within the story. And uh, the uh, the, (laughs) the interesting... uh, conceit and the way that was resolved at the end i just uh i i really enjoyed sync so that's my uh that's my very strong recommendation if you don't listen to any other torchwood today listen to that one that's my recommendation it's a great choice i loved it too so uh thanks again philip for another great episode we'll be back soon uh so for from us it is ta-ta for now ta-ta you have been listening to the Sirens of Audio episode 53, Annette Badland, Behind the Mask, with your hosts, Philip Edney and Dwayne Bunny. Next time on the show, it's time for Randomoids 2, The Selectatron Strikes Back, where we'll be discussing Doctor Who short trips, Gardens of the Dead, starring Mark Strickson, and Torchwood, One Rule, starring Tracy Ann Oberman. Theme music by Husky by the Geek, you'll find his video of the theme on his YouTube channel, Contact us by email via sirensofaudio at gmail.com. Links to all our podcast locations and our social media channels can be found on our website, sirensofaudio.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe, and share the love. It's all we need, really. 
And if you find your Doctor Who gas exchanger is malfunctioning because you only watch the TV show, it might be time for you to break out and listen to some audio versions. Because audio drama 